You're listening to a Rare Genomics Institute Rare Share podcast. Rare Genomics is an organization dedicated to helping rare disease patients find hope for a cure by helping patients secure funding and obtain a genetic sequence of their disease. The rareshare.org social networking platform provides an online community and support system for rare disease patients, families, and healthcare professionals. Hello everyone and welcome to RareShare Rare Genomics Institute session of our podcast series, Ask the Expert. This podcast will focus on advances in anti-synthetase syndrome from a clinical and research perspective. My name is Deepa Kushwaha and I'm the program manager for Rare Genomic Institute. Hosting today will be Imogen Crisp, Rare Genomics podcast organizer. Imogen, can you tell the listeners about RareShare Rare Genomics Institute? Yes. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here and taking part in this podcast. So the mission of Rare Genomics Institute is to help rare disease patients find hope for a cure by helping patients secure funding and obtain a genetic sequence of their disease. The rareshare.org social networking platform provides an online community and support system for rare disease patients, families, and healthcare professionals who may otherwise not know anyone else suffering from their disease. So rare genomics helps patients in a number of ways. They help with overcoming financial barriers for rare disease patients, including uninsured and underinsured patients. Um, They help with overcoming communication barriers, such as lack of understanding, language, cultural barriers. Also with overcoming medical system barriers, such as fragmented medical systems, missed appointments or lost results. Um, They help with overcoming psychological barriers, such as fear and distrust, and also with overcoming other barriers, such as transportation and need for childcare. Also, a quick disclaimer before we start. We are sharing a lot of -of state-of-the-art and new information. However, this is just for educational purposes and not a, a medical advice. This is not to replace talking to your doctor. So if you have any specific questions, make sure you do talk to your doctor. We hope this will be a helpful resource just for educational purposes. Since the podcast is an opportunity for the general community to engage with the experts, we have provided a mechanism for listeners to ask questions. Also, many of you have already submitted questions prior to the podcast, and we will try to provide you answers to the featured questions and also post the, all, all the podcast links and the responses in the Rare Share Anti-Synthetase Syndrome Community Forum and also on the Rare Genomics website. And without further ado, let's begin today's Ask the Experts podcast. Deepa, can you introduce our experts? Happy to imagine. As mentioned, today's segment will focus on helping patients living with anti-synthetase syndrome from a clinical and research perspective. Our first expert in this regard is Dr. Sonia Danoff. Dr. Danoff is an associate professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and co-director of the John Hopkins Interstitial Lung Disease Clinic. She is a specialist in diseases causing fibrosis or scarring the lung particularly those associated with autoimmune diseases, including myositis. She completed her MD and PhD at John Hopkins and followed it up with postdoc fellowship at the the John Hopkins University. And she completed her internship and residency at John Hopkins Hospital. Her research focuses on basic and translational studies in lung fibrosis. 
Dr. Denoff was awarded the 2007 American Thoracic Society Coalition for Pulmonary Fibrosis Research Award to support her research studies. She and her team have explored topics such as the role of support measures and palliative care, pulmonary manifestation of Sjogren's syndrome, idiopathic inflammatory myopathies, and treatment of cough in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The lab research has also involved investigating the lung as a potential target for the immune re reaction in myositis. Dr. Denoff, being a recipient of grant from the NIH, the Mid-Atlantic American Heart Association, and American Lung Association. Our next panelist is Dr. Frederick Miller. Dr. Miller is the Deputy Chief of the Clinical Research Branch and Chief of the Environmental Autoimmunity Group at National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences at the NIH Clinical Center. Dr. Miller oversees investigator in his group as well as others in national and international consortia that evaluate and conduct a wide range of basic and clinical studies on adult and juvenile autoimmune diseases. He obtained his MD and PhD from Case Western Reserve University, went on to medical residency at Emory and Stanford, and he did a rheumatology and immunology training at the NIH. His work in the field of autoimmunative disease spans three decades and involves many aspects of the environmental risk factors, epidemiology, immunology, genetics, pathogenesis, evaluation, and treatment of immune-mediated diseases. Dr. Miller has focused much of his work on autoimmune muscle diseases. He is leading a number of studies to identify environmental and genetic risk factors for autoimmunity and systemic autoimmune diseases. One of the, these studies is focused on environmental risk factors for antisynthetase syndrome. Dr. Miller has received a number of awards of distinction and has authored or co-authored over 200 research publications, reviews, books, and book chapters. He co-established and is co-chair of the International Myositis Assessment and Clinical Studies Group's IMAX. He has recently established Myositis Genetic Consortium, Myogen, to define new genetic risk and protective, myo protective factors for myositis. Thanks very much for that, Deepa. So welcome to the panel, Dr. Danoff and Dr. Miller. It's great to have you both here. Um, and now we will begin our Ask the Experts series. So I'm, I think the first question that would be useful for one of you to answer is how many different kinds of antisynthetase patients are there and what are those risk factors? So I can start with that and I'll certainly look forward to Fred's input as well. Um, really, we dis describe antisynthetase uh, as a syndrome. That is, it's a uh, group of diseases that can be defined by the presence of specific autoantibodies that are targeting a uh, very common protein that exists in everybody, in every cell in their body. And yet some people develop an immune reaction against a specific form of this protein called a tRNA synthetase. When that occurs, uh, individuals can develop a variety of symptoms that can include interstitial lung disease, um, fevers, arthritis, uh, muscle inflammation, um, 
raynodes, which is uh, cool fingers and toes, um, as well as um, uh, skin changes that can sometimes be described as dermatomyositis. So although we have a number of antisynthetase antibodies uh, that, we have, that we know and can measure in a laboratory, there are probably still others that we don't yet have testing for. Uh, and when you ask how many different kinds of antisynthetase patients there are, I would say that each antisynthetase patient is actually completely unique because every person brings to their disease a different genetic background and a different set of environmental exposures. We do, however, group these many individual patients uh, to some degree based on the autoantibody that they express. Um, Fred, would you have uh, other things to add to that? Um, no, I think that's a very good um, introduction and description. Um, there are, just to answer perhaps what the uh, questioner might be thinking about, um, probably about a dozen uh, autoantibodies that would allow one to be a part of the antisynthetase syndrome right now, and more are discovered every few years here, uh, which are directed against enzymes called amino acyl tRNA synthetases, which is how the antisynthetase syndrome got its name. And uh, some of the predominant symptoms, of course, and findings relate to the lung, relate to arthritis, relate to sometimes right nodes where your hands turn colors or painful in the cold or with emotion. And uh, different combinations of these uh, also um, can be patterns that can be seen in different types of patients. So I think I agree that uh, with Dr. Tanoff that there isn't a clear number <laughs> that we can uh, put our finger on uh, in terms of the uh, types of these diseases. And every patient has their own unique signs and symptoms, as, as she mentioned. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Um, and we have a question from Charlotte O, a community member, um, and she asks, actually, what actually causes antisynthetized syndrome? Like, why would one patient get it and another not get it? That's a great question. And probably when we know that with certainty, we'll have unlocked the secret to curing this disease. Uh, we certainly know that there are uh, genetic features that put people at risk. Uh, but one of the most exciting studies going on right now is one that Dr. Miller is heading, which is really trying to look at the interaction between genetics and our environment, the things which we experience, the infections that we get, uh, to try to understand why some people develop antisynthetase syndrome, whereas many people don't. So I'm going to have Dr. Miller describe that uh, in more detail. Yes, so um, the short answer is, of course, we don't know the exact mechanisms by which these diseases occur, and, the, and that is a, a, a very important area of research that uh, my group and others are undertaking right now. Um, as Dr. Danoff said, we think it's probably a combination of genetic and environmental risk factors that come together in an individual. <coughs> Excuse me. And that... Um, this may have to occur over many decades, in fact, with um, perhaps, of course, we're all born with genetic predispositions, and we know a number of important genes that are risk factors, um, 
um, in Caucasians or in, uh, in white people. We do think that these vary somewhat in different racial or ethnic groups around the world. Um, but then over time, of course, we all get different exposures. We all have different uh, uh, stresses. We all have different um, infections. We all have different amounts of um, sunlight that we get exposed to and so on. And that over time, these may be making changes, actually, to our, um, our, our genome, our DNA, that allow further changes to perhaps take place later on over perhaps even decades. So um, we do think that there are genetic and environmental factors involved that probably need to occur over time. We don't know exactly what all of these are, and that is a very important area of research that we're working on right now. Interesting. And then um, a follow-up question, actually, from Michael P. in California. He says that not long before his first symptoms of antisynthetase syndrome appeared, he had traveled to Guatemala and received all the necessary vaccinations before leaving. And he's wondering if there's any evidence that vaccinations might have had a link to him getting this autoimmune disease. Um, it's an interesting question that um, we are asking actually at this time by looking at, at cases and um, trying to understand if there are any patterns to the cases that seem to develop um, shortly after vaccinations compared to those that do not develop shortly after vaccinations. Um, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. The epidemiology data, however, doesn't suggest that there's really a strong association with vaccines right now. Um, and although there are case reports, as in this gentleman's case, uh, I think the, um, the, the little epidemiology that does exist suggests vaccines are not a cause of the disease, but we are continuing to explore this in some of our studies right now. And of course, a vaccine is a foreign protein that's injected in, usually into your muscle to induce a immune response. So that certainly um, would make sense perhaps since all patients or all people, in fact, develop a small amount of inflammation at the site of where that injection occurs, which is the first step perhaps in uh, developing a larger immune response later on. But in fact, we don't know the answer to this question, and we're still studying it right now. And just to follow up on Dr. Miller's comments, I think that the other point that we have to make is that we also have uh, you know, some suggestion that infection itself may be a trigger, and obviously vaccination is an important way to prevent infection. Uh, and so you know, our current recommendations are that our patients be vaccinated for preventable uh, illness like influenza. Uh, the other thing that the, um, the, the uh, uh, questioner uh, raised is that uh, he was uh, taking a trip to a different country. And obviously, uh, each country has different environmental characteristics as well, whether that be different um, types of of uh, uh, bacteria and viruses that live normally in the in the, uh, the the soil and in the water. So there are a number of of different possible exposures that the patient that the that the individual might have had that might have predisposed to the development. Certainly, um, you know, vaccination is one of the things that we uh, look into. But at present, I think that the the um, preponderance of of, of our experiences that vaccinations are, are safe and effective and have a very important role in protecting our patients from getting preventable illness. 
I totally agree with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then another question from a patient. This is from Lynn Kay, and she had a, quite a specific question. She was wondering if the relationship between the anti-Joe-1 antibody levels correspond to disease activity and whether that anti-Joe-1 can go into remission. There's uh, some amount of data on this, although I would say that the you know that there it's not absolutely definitive. There is some suggestion with Joe one in particular that um, disease activity may follow uh, the the level or titer of the Joe one, and uh, certainly we do see patients who uh, have as they recover from their disease that their antibody titer or level diminishes. Um, it's less clear that that's true with other forms of um, antisynthetase syndrome or autoimmune myositis. And so I'm not, um, I, I'm, I wouldn't say strongly that, that it always follows tighter, that disease activity always follows tighter. Um, and then the other question I think was, was can the antibody level go away? And, uh, you know, that's an interesting question. We certainly... Um, have seen in some patients, we don't routinely measure the titers in our patients, but uh, we have seen in some patients who have uh, recovered clinically that the levels in patients for whom a titer was drawn for some other reason uh, have gone down. I've not seen anybody who completely eliminated their antibody, but perhaps Dr. Miller has more experience in that. Um, yes, we did a study a number of years ago looking at this over time in a um, small number of patients, and um, the titers in general did seem to actually remarkably uh, correlate with the overall disease activity. This is an anti-JO1 in specific. Uh, and sometimes when there were flares of disease, the level of anti-JO1 antibody would go up before the actual um, flare of the disease, and they would tend to come down sometimes more quickly than the clinical response. And a small number of patients, and we're talking about a handful here, um, we have seen the antibody go completely away from, at least in the way we can detect it by immunoprecipitation, um, if a patient is in prolonged remission. But it usually takes a number of years before that occurs. Um, so I think the answer is in, in a few cases this can occur, but only after prolonged remission. Okay, great. And then I'm, one of the questions that, that we were wondering about is, can interstitial lung disease be a cause and or symptoms of antisympathetic syndrome? Um, that's a very, you know, very important question. Antisympathetic syndrome fits under the larger category of what's considered autoimmune myositis. And that's sort of a, a term that was developed uh, many, many years ago. And um, referred to the uh, fact that some patients, when they develop these antibodies, the first and most prominent symptom they develop is inflammation in the muscle, so they get muscle pain and muscle weakness. Now, as our ability to test for uh, uh, antibodies has improved and our understanding of uh, this disease syndrome has expanded, we recognize that there are a group of patients with antisynthetase syndrome antisynthetase antibodies whose only or prominent or most prominent symptom is their interstitial lung disease. And those patients are often referred to as being 
clinically amyopathic. What that means is that from a the standpoint of, of, of the patient or potentially the doctor, we don't really see that they have muscle weakness or muscle involvement. We don't know whether at a uh, biochemical level or a more kind of uh, rigorous level, there might be a little bit of muscle inflammation. So certainly interstitial lung disease can be uh, both uh, present in antisynthetase syndrome and it's sometimes the only symptom of antisynthetase syndrome. Some of the, I think, implied questions there as well. Um, sometimes the lung disease, um, as, as Dr. Danoff says, is the only thing that occurs and nothing else develops. But in other cases, perhaps after a few months, it seems like the muscle or the renodes or the arthritis or the other um, features of the antisynthetase syndrome will develop uh, later on. And there have been people suggesting um, that perhaps the lung is a primary site of perhaps infection or exposure to various um, environmental agents that might be the initiating uh, factor here for the syndrome and that the other uh, features of the disease will could develop later. But there clearly are examples going the opposite way where the uh, muscle inflammation, the myositis occurs first, uh, or the arthritis, or the Raynaud's, or the fevers, or whatever the features are, and that the lung disease uh, either never develops or develops much later um, than these other features. So it's a very heterogeneous picture in terms of the timing of when these different features um, do come on in different patients, and it's not clear why that's occurring right now. Okay, and, and just continuing with um, talking about symptoms, we had a specific question from Rohan B. in Australia, and he said he's had antisynthetase syndrome and polymyositis for six years, and he's recently developed a persistent throat-clearing cough, and he's had many tests and which apparently show up as normal, and he's wondering if it might be to do with um, muscle weakness in his throat, and he's wondering if this is a, a common thing and whether there's a resolution for him. So certainly, um, there can be, as we, as I uh, mentioned when we started, every patient is different, and so um, I think that one way to think about it is sort of not so much in this specific case, but in general why is it that people have the sense of throat clearing or or cough? And, um, you know, certainly uh, we see patients who um, have that symptom, and a lot of what we base our recommendations on is whether the timing that uh, when the, that those symptoms occur, does it happen all day long? Does it happen associated with meals? Does it happen first thing in the morning? Are there certain things which trigger it? Does it happen when they're exercising? And then depending on sort of those constellation of symptoms, we can think about whether it derives from the lung, that is that it's actually a symptom of the lung being irritated or inflamed, whether it's a symptom of the esophagus, the tube that extends from the mouth into the stomach being irritated and inflamed due to, say, reflux or um, inadequate movement of that of that esophagus, or whether it might be something higher up where it might be related to a swallowing dysfunction, a muscular weakness or swallowing dysfunction. And sometimes it's actually an even simpler issue. It might be a common thing like um, a seasonal allergy. So really understanding the context in which the symptoms occur 
is very important in terms of making sort of making decisions about what other tests need to be done and how to approach the symptom. Thanks for that. Um, and I think we've we've mentioned um, that arthritis can be a symptom of antisynthetase syndrome. And I was we're wondering how a patient can know if they have antisynthetase syndrome induced arthritis rather than another kind of rheumatoid arthritis. Well, yes, the um, the arthritis that occurs in antisynthetase syndrome patients um, can look very much like rheumatoid arthritis at first glance uh, in terms of involvement of the joints of the hands, the knuckles, and sometimes the first joint in the fingers, uh, and sometimes the wrist. Um, but it also has characteristics that are a little bit different than rheumatoid arthritis uh, in the sense that the feet tend to be less frequently involved jaw joints uh, in, the, in the head, the jaw temporomandibular joint, as we call it, seems to be less likely involved. Um, there are less frequent um, severe erosions anyway. On x-ray, you don't see the bones being eaten out as much as they are in rheumatoid arthritis. And the amount of therapy that's needed to treat the um, arthritis of the antisynthetase syndrome is usually a much higher dose of uh, prednisone or methotrexate than is often effective in, in rheumatoid arthritis, as well as, of course, often not having the rheumatoid factor or the other autoantibodies that are, that are strongly associated with rheumatoid arthritis, and having a different genetic background or predisposition based on the HOA types. So I think um, it's not uncommon to see patients who have been, I would say, misdiagnosed in many cases with rheumatoid arthritis, but in fact have uh, antisynthetase syndrome arthritis, and um, the treatments are a little bit different, the outcomes are a little bit different, and the um, I think mechanisms are likely a little bit different. Um, so they are, they are, I think they are truly different diseases, but it often mimics and can be confused with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. Um, and we wanted to talk a little bit about diagnoses. Um, I think we have already touched on this a little bit, but just wondering about any other kind of disease-specific genes, pathways, or metabolites which target antisynthetase syndrome and how these can be diagnosed. Well, the typical diagnosis, of course, is a clinical one. Patients uh, present with um, um, interstitial lung disease that we were talking about, uh, muscle inflammation or myositis, the arthritis we just described, um, Raynaud's phenomenon where you get the um, changes in the color of the hands, sometimes feet or nose or ears with the changes in the temperature or with anxiety. Um, sometimes this cracking and scaling of the fingers of the hand, especially the index fingers and the thumb, which is called mechanics hands. Sometimes feet, low-grade fevers uh, for unexplained reasons. Um, these are the typical um, cardinal symptoms, we might call them, of the antisynthetase syndrome. And then, of course, it can be confirmed or at least added on to by uh, looking at the particular autoantibodies that the patients have. So um, that's the typical um, you know, presentation and diagnosis is usually a clinical one based on the evaluation of those signs and symptoms, confirming that there's not another cause for these um, and often doing the laboratory tests that show the 
myositis and the presence of the antisynthetase all the way at the bottom. Okay. Um, and I think I I'm going to move on to talking about treatment now. We do have quite a few questions from community members about treatment. Um, there was one from Charlotte O. And she says, is it possible for antisynthetase syndrome to go into remission or to be cured? And if so, what is the recommended treatment? Uh, I think that that's a question that um, all of our patients have in the back of their minds when they come to see us. You know, is this something where I'll be treated for some set period of time and then I'll get better and I won't have to wake up every morning thinking about this disease? And I think that, uh, you know, my response is generally that uh, the vast majority of our patients improve um, and uh, go on to live uh, completely normal, full lives. Um, a, uh, a very, I think, a smaller group uh, are able to come off of medications completely and appear to have these uh, prolonged remissions that Dr. Miller uh, referred to. And then there's a minority of patients for whom uh, therapy at at fairly aggressive levels is needed for a long for a long period of time, and that might be indefinitely. And we only really know once we start the treatment pathway. One of the things that I, I do think is quite important is to have therapy um, initiated as as soon as the disease is recognized, as long as there are symptoms related to it. We certainly do occasionally find patients who are antibody positive, but don't have any overt symptoms of disease. But that's sort of the minority of patients. And for each patient, the therapy is going to be uh, somewhat different based on what their prominent symptoms are, whether they be joint or lung or muscle or otherwise. Um, but they all fall into the category of immunosuppressants, that is, medications that tend to lower the natural defense system against bacteria and viruses, because we think that the thing that causes antisynthetase syndrome, as well as all of the other autoimmune diseases, is a mistake by our defense system, such that some part of ourselves is recognized as being abnormal or foreign, and the body mounts an attack on it. So the mainstay of therapy is to try to lower the immune system so it's not quite as aggressive in attacking itself in hopes that whatever triggered it will eventually recover, go away, and the body will essentially forget that it saw itself as being part of, of a foreign or danger signal. Great overview. Is there anything you'd like to add about that, Dr. Miller? I think that was a very good summary. That's great. Um, and then we had a specific question about treatment from Sandra C. in California. She was um, wondering if uh, she wanted to know more about the connection between ILD and GERD and whether there are any new treatments for the morning coughing slash mucus episodes that GERD seems to trigger. And she said so far she has tried Prilosec, Nexium and Zantac without success. Sure. Uh, that's actually a very um, interesting area that's being examined in many forms of interstitial lung disease, uh, that being ILD, um, and is not unique to antisynthetase syndrome. So just to um, kind of give a little background, uh, GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease, and it's the idea that actually the vast majority of us, even though our stomach is supposed to be 
uh, separated from the esophagus uh, by a band-like structure, which we call a sphincter. Um, occasionally, small bits of stomach acid will uh, wash back up into the esophagus. And when they get into the esophagus, they can actually um, irritate the upper airway, so where the, um, the, the voice box is. And they can even trickle down into the lungs and cause injury in the lungs. Now, for a, a variety of reasons, we think that there probably is a relationship between such reflux and the development or the progression of certain forms of interstitial lung disease. But perhaps even more important is the um, feature that uh, this um, uh, uh, individual has asked about, which is it causes a very frustrating uh, cough, and especially first thing in the morning. Now, what we often do is use an acid blocker, um, and typically the, the, the medications that you named were all forms of acid blockers, uh, to try to reduce the amount of acid in the stomach. However, what we really need to do is, is also reduce the risk of fluids that are in the stomach, whether they're acid or not, from washing back up into the um, esophagus. And sometimes the strategies are actually quite simple. One of them is to avoid eating or to complete your dinner meal three hours before you lie down to go to sleep so that your stomach has a chance to empty. The fuller the stomach is, the more likely there will be this fluid that washes back into the esophagus. We sometimes recommend that people actually raise the head of their bed the, the bed frame at the head end by four to six inches to give themselves some gravity to help keep the food and fluid down in the stomach. We also encourage patients who are above ideal body weight to lose some weight because when the abdomen is larger, it causes more back pressure on the stomach and tends to increase reflux. So there are quite a number of behavioral um, strategies that can improve reflux, and that will uh, likely be complementary with the use of an acid blocker to help reduce the symptoms from reflux. Okay, yeah, I think I'm sure that'll be very helpful for Sandra. Um, and then another question from a patient, Joan Kay in Indiana. She says she was diagnosed with the Joe One syndrome in 2009. She's been on IVIG for three years and needs rituximab every six months. She also says she takes tacrolimus for her ILD, and she she said she currently has a CK of 70, and she's wondering how long she can she can take this IVIG for. I'm not sure that I know that there is a limit. Uh, you know, again, I, I think that to a large degree the um, the type of medication and the length of treatment is going to depend on the individual, and that obviously will depend on the assessment that her physician makes in terms of the activity of her lung disease and her muscle disease and her joint disease. Um, but, you know, we, we do have patients who stay on medications for long periods of time, and hopefully over time as disease becomes less active, we're able to sort of reduce or taper the dosing of the medications that we're using. But I don't think that there's really any established absolute length of time that a person can be on any of these particular therapies. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, uh, Dr. Miller. I agree with all those comments. I think, um, you know, I've certainly had patients on these therapies for probably going on 20 years now that um, 
And unfortunately, each time I've tried to taper one or the other therapy, there were clear flares of disease. So that in some cases, there is a requirement for prolonged treatment. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, we do try to add perhaps different types of medications that might have slightly different or complementary effects um, to allow tapering to med other medications. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we don't have much data to tell us, you know, what's the right thing to do here. In each case, it's a decision that the patient and the doctor need to come to together um, by assessing the potential risk-benefit ratio of each of these uh, medications and the mixtures of medications that we often have to give to control disease. So I agree. I don't think there's, a, there's an easy answer to this question, but I think um, in many cases, um, you can taper the medications, and patients can go into remission uh, so that there's no evidence of disease activity. But in others, um, many years of therapy are needed. Okay, thank you for that. And um, I think this is the last question about treatment that we have um, right now is just wondering what sort of recent advances there have been in the treatment of antisynthetase syndrome. You know, from my perspective as a pulmonologist, I think that um, one of the most important advances has actually been the recognition that patients who have interstitial lung disease um, as their prominent symptom can have antisynthetase syndrome. And the reason why I say this is because, um, you know, there have been, uh, there's been the recognition that uh, patients who develop perhaps very abrupt onset interstitial lung disease can fit into this category, and that um, directs them down the pathway of receiving immunosuppression, which might not have been given otherwise. And that's, I, I think, resulted in you know saving many lives of particularly young people who presented with this very fulminant uh, form of interstitial lung disease. Now, in terms of other sort of medications or strategies, I think that, um, you know, we're in a very exciting period of time where there are a lot of new um, therapies becoming available for um, a variety of indications in autoimmune disease. And there are uh, clinical trials happening on a month-to-month -month basis, which are really uh, going to explore new options for uh, the use of of these newly developed medications. Um, and I would certainly encourage patients who have interest in thinking about what is available moving forward to, to look at the uh, clinicaltrials.gov website to see what active trials are available uh, and enrolling in their areas. Yes, I would agree with that. I think that um... Most of the advances, of course, in the treatment of myositis have occurred because of the advances in the treatment of other related uh, autoimmune and rheumatic diseases. As uh, physicians have gotten access to those drugs um, being approved for those diseases, they've tried them on myositis lung, uh, or lung disease patients with patients with myositis who have lung disease and found that they've worked or um, have you know anecdotes or some experience in small trials suggesting that they might help too. And um, there are many, many being uh, investigated in different rheumatic diseases right now. I hope that in the future we will have many more options in terms of uh, new treatments. Well, that's very interesting for our community. Um, and just just as, as well as the sort of the these advances and, and, and 
research that you've already mentioned. Are there, is there any other, um, you know, recent research which, which is going to be able to help these patients who are dealing with antisynthetase syndrome? I think getting back to one of the questions that was asked before, uh, one of the critical questions is what, are, what is actually causing the development of these diseases? And we've talked generically about uh, genetic and environmental interactions. But in each patient, you know, there may be a specific different uh, gene-environment um, connection that relates to the development of these diseases. And of course, if we could figure this out, we could actually end up potentially preventing some of the development of these diseases, which is one of the goals of our uh, institute and our group in the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences at the NIH. So along those lines, we are doing a number of investigations right now trying to understand what are the triggers for these diseases. We're looking at um, brothers and sisters or twins that are very close in age within five years and who have had recent onset within five years to see what might be triggering them. We're looking specifically at patients with the antisynthetase syndrome within two years of onset to ask a number of questionnaire um, questions and to evaluate a number of laboratory tests to try to understand the triggers there. Um, we're looking at the development of these diseases that occur in the military um, during their military service. And we actually do have a treatment study looking at the treatment of calcinosis related to myositis <clears throat> with sodium thiosulfate. Um, so all these are ongoing studies that we ourselves are doing, and there are, of course, others that are located at clinicaltrials.gov. And I would encourage uh, any of the patients out there who might be interested in studies uh, at the NIH to call our recruitment office, uh, number 1-800-411-1222. That's 800-411-1222 uh, um, um, to discuss with them any possible studies that they might be eligible for. And I think I would just I would just add to that that um, this is a rare disease, and we're fortunate that there are uh, centers like the National Institutes of Health uh, that are focused on these rare diseases. There are also um, academic medical sites across the United States that have identified an interest in uh, myositis and antisynthetase syndrome. And often there are local uh, studies going on trying to understand issues like uh, how do patients differ based on the um, expression of the antibodies they have? Is there a better way of us matching therapy to, um, to patient based on uh, a variety of criteria that might be genetic or might be um, uh, laboratory-based? So I would also encourage um, anybody who's interested to look uh, into whether there is a local myositis center at one of their um, academic uh, um, uh, institutions nearby and, and see whether there are also uh, ongoing research projects there that they could uh, potentially uh, contribute to and, and hopefully ultimately benefit from. I totally agree with that. I'd also um, recommend that um, patients might consider joining uh, the largest uh, myositis patient support group in the world, which is called the Myositis Association, um, or TMA, um, who have um, not only their own um, you know, websites and their own meetings and their own newsletters, but also sometimes uh, little 
experience and learn about new treatments and approaches to these diseases. Yeah, I think that information is all going to be very helpful for our community, definitely. Um, and just to kind of follow up on that, you know, what's the best way for a, um, a patient to know if they're going to be eligible for any of these kind of ongoing studies? Is it best for them to, to call the number that you mentioned, Dr. Miller, or, or is there kind of another way they can figure that out? That number I gave were um, specifically for the studies going on at the National Institutes of Health. But um, as Dr. Danoff mentioned, there's a generic website called clinicaltrials.gov, which is a, a more inclusive list of all the studies, or at least many of the studies going on even around the world, that um, allows um, patients to do a search under myositis and uh, pull up those that are of interest and contact the um, contact number on those sites as well. So I would recommend um, those two approaches. Okay, thanks. That's very helpful. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about um, lifestyle um, before we finish. We had a question from Denise in Oregon, and she was wondering, you know, what is the number one indicator of improved outcomes and whether food choices can change those outcomes? I think that's a really great um, question and an important line of thinking. You know, we tend to think about uh, diseases being uh, cured by medications, but I think that, uh, you know, there are obviously a lot of lifestyle choices that allow people to become healthy more quickly. Uh, while we don't recognize that there's any specific food or diet that's, um, that necessarily is beneficial, I certainly encourage uh, patients, if they're um, above ideal body weight, to try to um, lose some weight through thoughtful eating and to uh, you know, focus on a healthy diet, which I think most people really are aware of what they need to do in that, in that standpoint, from that standpoint. I also really strongly encourage patients to uh, increase the level of physical activity that they have in a, in a safe and, and sometimes monitored fashion. So for instance, patients who have interstitial lung disease may be eligible for a program called pulmonary rehab, which is a monitored exercise program, very similar to the kind of cardiac rehab that patients might go through if they've had a recent uh, bypass surgery or something of that sort related to their heart. Um, but I think that having patients um, take on a healthier lifestyle is uh, good, not just in this disease, but in every disease. And I think that in part, it's because it allows them to build a healthy frame that allows them to uh, you know, to tolerate the changes, the, the, the issues that come up with antisynthetase syndrome. Clearly, if there are patients who are smoking, we encourage them to stop smoking. And um, I think that also trying to identify uh, changeable or modifiable stressors in life is also a very important point. Now, most of these are, are based primarily on either small studies or just what we would call expert consensus, that is, that it's something that we've observed in uh, our clinics. And uh, I, I'm going to ask Dr. Miller if he has any other uh, specific comments about that and about any other research that focuses on those issues. Yes, I think those are all good points, uh, Dr. Danoff, and I think um, 
essentially what your mother and grandmother have been telling you for years is I think the general recommendation that you should take. Um, <clears throat> live a healthy lifestyle, get your exercise, eat a variety of foods, avoid too much fat, sugar, salt uh, in your diet, um, avoid too much sun, which we think may be a trigger for certain types of um, these diseases. Stress reduction is probably important um, based on anecdotes again. Um, I think these are all the, you know, what we call living a healthy lifestyle that we all should be doing for a variety of reasons, including decreasing risks of cancer and other diseases besides uh, myositis. And again, the data are rather limited, but uh, based on anecdotes and based on the small studies that have been done, I think they all make sense to me, and I think they are the, the reasonable things to do. That's all really great advice, I think. Um, and we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, but before we go, I wanted to check if there was any uh, anything else specific that um, either Dr. Danoff or Dr. Miller that you were hoping we could we were going to cover today that you'd like to mention. I think that the one thing I'd like to leave. Um, your listeners with is the fact that I think that this is um, a disease, a syndrome which is uh, very treatable and for which I think that there's a tremendous amount of hope. I think that the hope should derive both from the fact that there's a lot of um, good outcomes in this disease as well as the fact that there's a lot of very, very high quality research taking place. So while it can seem overwhelming at the start to receive a diagnosis of interstitial lung disease or antisynthetase syndrome or myositis, there is information that's available. And with that information and a good relationship with your uh, medical providers, I think that you should uh, proceed with a lot of optimism that, that your medical condition will improve and that, um, that there's reason for hope. Um, it can be a little overwhelming when you first uh, get a diagnosis like this and look at the internet. There's a lot of information there. Some of it is very good quality. Some of it is less so. So I really encourage you to, to look for the sources of very um, uh, reliable information, things like uh, the Myositis Association, information available from the NIH, um, information available from some of the academic uh, uh, myositis centers, and use that to to take control and to to feel more in control of of this disease that you're experiencing. Um, and obviously, if patients have questions, they should try to reach out to get answers because that's the only way you can really feel confident in uh, how you're proceeding with with treating your illness and with the, um, the, the, the questions and concerns that come up as someone becomes ill or lives through their illness. That's an excellent, those are all excellent suggestions that I hardly recommend as well. Uh, and I, I think that um, one challenge is that, of course, there aren't a lot of experts in the field who've had a lot of experience treating patients with the antisynthetase syndrome. And sometimes it can take a while to find someone that you can mesh with well in terms of your doctors. Um, your doctors, of course, should recognize their limitations and, and feel free to refer you to other referral centers, at least for occasional um, perhaps checkups or uh, comments on your uh, status. And I think um, I would certainly encourage all patients to feel free to reach out to their doctors to try to ask if there are other opportunities or options for them 
or if it would be helpful for them to go to a referral center perhaps to at least get a, a quick review and a, maybe a quick second opinion about what may be going on or if there are other therapies that might be helpful for them. So um, I certainly feel these, this is a treatable condition. In most cases, we will, can get patients at least much better, if not into a clinical um, remission where they are at least not as uh, affected by their um, shortness of breath, weakness, and other problems. And I think that um, that should be the goal of all of our treatments and all of our um, uh, approaches to these diseases. I think there's hope that more and more treatments will become available in the future and that we'll have better, even better outcomes in the future. Okay, well, I think this information is all going to be extremely helpful for people in the antisynthetase syndrome community. Um, and just one more suggestion is that um, patients can also join the uh, antisynthetase syndrome community on rareshare.org. Um, there are, you know, a, a good number of people already on that with whom you can, you know, discuss your, your own, um, you know, experience with the disease. Um, so yeah, check out rareshare.org. Um, yeah, and, and so thank you so much, Dr. Danoff and Dr. Miller. Um, I think this is going to be extremely valuable information for people. We really appreciate your input and we are looking forward to finding out what the future holds for antisynthetase syndrome as a rare disease. And uh, I just wanted to thank each person for their hard work, dedication in these fields of research and sharing of your findings with all of us. And also taking the time to educate others of your finding is extremely helpful for the antisynthetase syndrome community of uh, us, which includes patient caregivers, uh, as well as phys physicians and staff. And of course, uh, I want to thank all the community members for their tremendous response and sending us your questions. Uh, thank you, everybody. Certainly been my pleasure to be a part of this, and I thank you very much and, and hope that it was helpful. And my pleasure as well, and we also look forward with you to uh, an, in an increasingly bright future for our patients. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Rare Genomics Rare Share podcast. Visit www.raregenomics.org and www.rareshare.org to find out more and join the community.